You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. So we are continuing our uh, Trump in the world um, with different geographical regions now. And now uh, today we will talk about uh, Russia and Trump. So uh, we have with us Professor Scott Radnitz. Uh, he is an expert on especially post-Soviet politics in the Caucasus and Central Asia and Russian Federation. And uh, he is also the director of our Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies, Professor Radnitz. First off, I want to say how unfair it is that uh, I'm the first speaker who has to go against the sun. <laughs> But luckily, we're in a windowless room, so nobody actually knows it's out there except for the fact that I reminded you. Uh, I also want to semi-apologize for the stupid pun in the title, but it was, it was too tempting to resist. Um, and there may be a later pun in one of the slides, and if you're really observant, you might catch it too. So as you know by now, Trump's approach to the world is unusual in a lot of ways. Mostly, his proclamations on relations with various countries have been confrontational like what he says, has said, at least during the campaign, about China and Mexico and NATO and the EU. And his comments represent reversals of longstanding policy. And then there are his comments about Russia. I'm not going to try to impersonate Trump, but I'm going to read some of the things that he said over the years about Putin and Russia. Going back to 2007, he said, look at Putin, what he's done with Russia. I mean, you know what's going on over there. I mean, this guy has done, whether you like him or not, or don't like him, he's doing a great job in rebuilding the image of Russia and also rebuilding Russia, period. In 2013, this is a tweet. Will he become my new best friend? He wrote this before the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. In 2015, I think I'd get along very well with Vladimir Putin. I just think so. Later on in 2015, It's always a great honor to be so nicely complimented by, by a man so highly respected with his, his own country and beyond. This was after um, Putin called Trump a, a bright or striking personality. Um, he goes on, I've always felt that Russia and the United States should be able to work well with each other, defeating terrorism and restoring world peace, not to mention trade and all of the other benefits derived from mutual respect. Uh, December 2015, he's running his country and at least he's a leader, unlike what we have in this country. April of last year. I'm saying that I possibly have a good relationship. He's been very nice to me. If we can make a great deal for our country and get along with Russia, that would be a tremendous thing. I would love to try it. So Trump's comments are curious. And this raises two questions. One is, how do we explain such enthusiasm from our current president about a possible change in direction toward Russia? Besides a few countries of ill repute, like North Korea, Iran, and Cuba, probably US relations with Russia have been, among, have been the worst in the world. So this kind of flattery is very striking, especially coming from a Republican, right? the party that's usually more confrontational with Russia. 
And a second question is, is a warming of relations with Russia likely or possible? And is it wise? Only dyed-in-the-wool cold warriors would say the U.S. shouldn't try to get along with Russia. But if getting along means compromising basic U.S. values, like human rights or democracy or the inviolability of borders, would it be worth it? Most people would say no. But would such an abrupt change even be possible? There's campaign rhetoric, and then there's reality. And there's another wrinkle here, which is that there are leaders and what they say, and then there are national interests. National interests have defenders. And it's not easy for a president, even a strong-willed one, to suddenly reverse national interests. So first, I'm going to talk about where the US and Russia national interests have aligned or diverged before Trump. And then I'm going to come back and talk about Trump's vision of the world. The US and Russia are usually seen through the lens of presidents, uh, of personality, and of ego. We tend to personalize things in Russia. Putin hacked Hillary's emails. Putin invaded Ukraine. But leaders have to operate amid long-standing and often hard-to-change factors like geography and historical memories and domestic politics. Russia with a different president would probably not be a democracy today, nor would it likely agree with the United States on, more, on most foreign policy issues. Over the last 15 years in the Putin era, and for most of the 20th century, the US and Russia have had different interests and mostly unfriendly relations. Even if Trump wanted to drastically overhaul the American approach to Russia, it wouldn't change the fact that American and Russian interests beyond the leaders are fundamentally at odds over most issues. Uh, so before Trump and before Putin, going back in time, what was going on that affects the prospects for a, a change in the relationship today? Oh, I forgot to put that one up. So in the 1990s, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia was thrown into an economic depression. Its gross domestic product contracted about 40% between 1991 and 1998. This was much more severe than the Great Depression that hit the West in the 1930s. In Russia, wealthy oligarchs bought up national assets cheaply. There was a breakdown of law and order. Organized criminals rose up to fill in the, the gaps in security. Regions in Russia outside of Moscow went their own way, ignored the federal government, refused to pay taxes, and in some cases threatened to secede. Yeltsin, seen here in one of his classic poses, was a democratic reformer, very close to the West, enjoyed, enjoyed strong support from President Clinton. And as he tried to build democracy, he also presided over this collapse of the Russian economy and over Russia's status as a superpower. He was forced to make deals with the wealthy in order to win re-election in 1996 and to stave off the communists who wanted to reverse economic reforms. He was drunk much of the time, and he was clearly not in control of the country. And then this guy came along. By contrast with Yeltsin, Putin was tough, resolute, sober, and always in control. Putin promised Russians that he would put Russia back on its feet. He would re restore the Russian state, grow the economy, 
and restore a modicum of self-respect. In short, Putin promised to make Russia great again. He turned out to be intolerant of criticism. He cracked down on the media and the opposition. He reduced the Duma to a rubber stamp, created a ruling party that controlled all the regions in the country, ended elections for governors, so now they would be appointed centrally, fought a second war in Chechnya. But most important from the perspective of most Russians was that the economy bounced back. In the 2000s, Russia saw the rise of a middle class, building of new infrastructure, shopping malls, American-style consumerism. People had money in their pockets for the first time and had the ability to travel abroad. And even though politically they weren't as free as in the Yeltsin years, people enjoyed the fact that their well-being was improved. The narrative to explain how this happened was that Putin was solely responsible for the improvement of the Russian economy and uh, people's quality of life through force of will and through savvy management to rebuild the Russian state. In fact, the rising price of oil played a pretty big role. And some economists uh, credit reforms during the Yeltsin era, economic reforms after the 1990 collapse of the ruble with helping to jumpstart the Russian economy once uh, the price of oil went up. But Putin got the credit. This is his popularity rating. There's a lot of um, it, that vacillation, but it centers around 70%. And today, he's thought to be around 80%. Let that number sink in. In America, a president is considered to be doing very well if he's at, say, 55%. And even 50 is pretty good. So this is Putin. He hasn't been under 60%. Uh, with maybe a slight dip, I'm not sure what that, yeah, during the, um, before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, has, has rarely gone under 60%. Today he's about 80. So Putin got the credit for this. Today Russians associate democracy with chaos, and after Yeltsin they were willing to trade personal freedom for stability and personal well-being. If you look back at the situation in Russia in 1999, if not Putin, somebody else similar would probably have emerged. Somebody who would promise to rebuild Russia, to restore its status as a superpower, and who was willing to compromise democracy as a result. And the Russian experience shows that when people are dissatisfied with the status quo, they're willing to roll the dice and take a chance on someone different, come what may. Another major component of Putin's legitimacy is his foreign policy. So in the Putin era, differences uh, between America and Russia in foreign policy were exposed. In most cases, Russia has perceived itself as being the aggrieved party as the US has gotten its way on most important issues where they disagree. Russian grievances and the feeling of being ignored and in some cases being threatened have contributed to a Russian sense of patriotism and that's also been a factor in increasing Putin's popular support. It wasn't always this way, though, at least at the beginning. In 2000, uh, when both Putin and Bush um, were new on the scene, relations between the two countries were not that bad because Clinton and Yeltsin had had a good rapport. After 9-11, Putin called Bush to express condolences. But after that, and to some extent before that, there were a litany of events that involved disagreements between the two countries that worsened relations. 
and uh, Putin and people who, who follow the news in Russia would be able to recite the list of grievances almost verbatim. In 1999, the NATO alliance bombed Serbia against vehement Russian objections. The US was largely responsible for the enlargement of NATO from the 1990s into the 2000s. So here you can see um, where the border lay in 1990 and where it, where it was as of 2009, much, much closer to Russia's border. Uh, besides that, the Bush administration withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty over Russian objections. The US launched the war in Iraq in 2003 over Russian objections. In 2003, there was a revolution in Georgia that brought a new president who adopted a pro-West and expressly anti-Russian foreign policy. Shortly after that, there was a revolution in Ukraine that brought another pro-Western leader to power, um, again, over Russia's objections. In 2008, the Bush administration advocated for Ukraine and Georgia to be the next members of NATO. Uh, the Bush administration also wanted to put a missile defense system in former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, Czech Republic and Poland. In 2012, during the, uh, what started off as the Arab Spring and became something else, Russia gave its assent by not vetoing a UN Security Council resolution to get involved in Libya. And eventually NATO operations in Libya helped to overthrow Gaddafi, also over Russian objections. So in each case, there was a disagreement. Russia objected and the US got its way anyway, and Russia ultimately had to acquiesce. One exception to this is in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. This was mostly interpreted as a reaction to the perception that NATO had crossed a red line by advocating for Georgia to join NATO. But things didn't get better after that. And then in 2014, there was a revolution, second revolution in Ukraine, and that was the last straw. Uh, I wouldn't say a pro-Russian, but a, uh, a pragmatic president, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown by pro-European crowds, and as a result, a pro-Western, pro-European government took over. This particular revolution, like other colored revolutions that preceded it, was not a U.S. initiative. It was not intended by either the U.S. or Russia to become an international flashpoint, but the results of this regime overthrow ended up working against Russian interests. The US saw it as a lucky break, as an isolated incident. Russia interpreted this as part of a pattern, as the latest of these many transgressions against Russian interests. As everybody knows, Russia then annexed Crimea, uh, a mostly ethnic Russian and pro-Russian region of Ukraine. Putin made a speech on March 18, 2014, to uh, announce the annexation of Crimea officially. But the speech was not just about that. It was a speech that repeated the litany of grievances that Russia has held against the US since the end of the Cold War. And it was a very important speech because it laid out certain markers, summarized a lot of things that uh, the Putin administration had, had been saying and laid it all out very clearly. So I'm gonna actually read a few excerpts from the speech because it really makes clear where Russia stands. So, uh, 
Putin says, our Western partners led by the United States of America prefer not to be guided by international law in their practical policies, but by the rule of the gun. They've come to believe in their exclusivity and exceptionalism that they can decide the destinies of the world that only they can ever be right. They act as they please. Here and there, they use force against sovereign states, building coalitions based on the principle, if you're not with us, you are against us. To make this aggression look legitimate, they force the necessary resolutions from international organizations. And if for some reason this does not work, they simply ignore the UN Security Council and the UN overall. So here he's talking about the uh, NATO intervention into Serbia, the US invasion of Iraq, and Libya, any case where the US gets involved in regime change, which Russia does not like. He goes on in a different part of the speech. Um, and all this, while Russia strive to engage in dialogue with our colleagues in the West, we are constantly proposing cooperation on all key issues. We want to strengthen our level of trust and for our relations to be equal, open, and fair, but we saw no reciprocal steps. On the contrary, they have lied to us many times, made decisions behind our backs, placed us before an accomplished fact. This happened with NATO's expansion to the east, as well as the deployment of military infrastructure at our borders. They kept telling us the same thing. Well, this does not concern you. So here Putin is saying, you're not respecting Russia. We want to be a great power, and it's your fault that we're not. And then he says, uh, by 2014, and, and I think to justify the invasion of Crimea in particular, Russia found itself in a position it could not retreat from. If you compress a spring all the way to its limit, it will snap back hard. I'm going to read that again because that's the best part of the speech. If you compress the spring all the way back to its limit, it will snap back hard. You must always remember this. Today, it is imperative to end this hysteria, to refute the rhetoric of the Cold War, and to accept an obvious fact. Russia is an independent, active participant in international affairs, and international affairs. Like other countries, it has its own national interests that need not be taken into a, that need to be taken into account and respected. That's a very reasonable statement, but you can also read that as a euphemism because not everybody perceives Russia the way that Russia sees itself. Some might say that Russian behavior is actually aggressive and intimidating. It's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, domestically, around this time in 2012, 13, 14, Putin also articulated Russia's foreign policy and Russia's interests in opposition to Europe. And he launched a new campaign uh, of, of values, emphasizing how Russia was different from Europe that emphasized nationalism. Uh, and Putin argued that Russia was actually a different civilization and was arguing for the need to create a civilizational bloc to counter Europe. And the values expressed by this bloc would be nationalist rather than cosmopolitan. It involved defending sovereignty against outside attempts to change Russian politics or culture. And it had a religious element rather than secular, like Europe. When Putin first put out these ideas in 2012 in response to protests against him, uh, this was kind of a new angle and it seemed kind of typically eccentric of Putin and uh, most people, most world leaders dismissed him. But then he lucked out because more recently, in the last year or two, globally citizens have turned against politics and incumbent politicians. Populists in various countries advocate, like Putin, nationalism over globalism. They reject US hegemony, and they reject liberal democracy as soft. 
They advocate for the interests of one segment of the population called the people, and they demonize others, whom they various call liberals, cosmopolitans, or globalists. And they favor an authoritarian style of politics that usually favors personalities, and in some cases, cults of personality, over institutions. So Putin looked like an outlier in the early 2010s, and now, in some ways, kind of a visionary. And if you look at this as a global trend, the rise of populism, or the so-called nationalist international, you see a variety of Putin-like figures coming to power and following a Putin-like model of governance. So you have authoritarians in authoritarian countries. You have authoritarians who seek to make their countries more authoritarian. And you have authoritarians in democracies. So now that I've shown a picture of Trump again, we can get back to the other question. Why did Trump reverse the longstanding Republican position on Russia? There was no obvious electoral benefit for doing so. There was no clamoring for a change in Russia policy from the base, the working class base in the Midwestern states who voted for him. Trump mostly ran on domestic issues, and if he ever talked about foreign countries, it was usually to link to some domestic policy that people, people cared about more. Trade with China, immigration with Mexico. So talking about Russia seemed kind of gratuitous. So I think one way to explain Trump's fixation is about leadership style. Trump sees himself as the quintessential strong leader, as does Putin. Putin is the CEO of Russia Inc. And as I said, he presents himself and creates this image of a leader who's fully in control, tough on terrorists, Superman. And you've probably seen some of the, uh, what we, we might consider silly, uh, photo ops and PR stunts where they have Putin out uh, rescuing a tiger or flying with the birds or um, finding an antique vase underwater. He's a superhero, at least on Russian TV. And this fits Trump self, Trump's self-image. Trump also has a history with television and the persona that the producers made for him suited very nicely the way that Trump sees himself. Other politicians in the US see Putin differently than Russians do. They note that Putin is a dictator and represses, represses oppositions and represses the media. But from Trump's perspective, this is a trifling detail of substance. In style, when Trump looks at Putin, he likes what he sees. So Russians believe what they see on TV. This show aired for 13 years, and perhaps Americans also believe what they see on TV. And when he says, you're fired, that resonates. Putin and Trump also have a similar view of power. Putin sees protests as illegitimate, and not only when they're against him. Protests to Putin signal anarchy, the opposite of order. When Putin was a KGB officer in East Germany during perestroika, he saw from long distance how a country that he was loyal to, that he served for his whole life, could collapse almost overnight as a result of the masses organizing and speaking out. Trump, before he was president, actually a long time ago, 
1990, said that he admired the Chinese response to the protests in Tiananmen Square. He criticized Mikhail Gorbachev in 1990 for not having a firm enough hand. And this is something Putin might have said, and I think he has said that. After the election in 2016, uh, Trump blamed the media and quote unquote professional protesters for the demonstrations that broke out after his election. So this is kind of a Putin-esque authoritarian worldview. That is, you need a strong hand or the people will run amok and anarchy will follow. And their idea of power is about having no internal rivals, about simply being tough, giving orders, having people obey you. And this is a different conception of how power uh, emerges, where power comes from in democracy, where usually you have to try to build support, build coalitions, and it's the popular institutional support you get that gives you legitimacy to implement policies. So these are personality-based explanations for why Trump might be speaking that way. There are also conspiracy theories. I'm not going to go into great depth on this because you can see, you can read about all this uh, on, on the internet, and you can see plenty of discussion about this stuff on CNN. I'll just mention a few of the, uh, the notions and conspiratorial ideas people have thrown out that Putin, sorry, that Trump is being blackmailed by Putin for uh, his personal behavior, that Russia has leverage over Trump because of debts, uh, that there was collusion to steal elections, uh, the 2016 election, and this is the most serious charge and it's actually actively being investigated by the FBI. Uh, I'm not able to give any more insight into this than you're already seeing because we don't actually know what happened. But it's also possible, uh, as shady as all this looks, that there may be not a completely innocent but a non-conspiratorial explanation for what's been going on. Uh, Trump's team has shown obvious sympathies toward Russia for various reasons. So for Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, he was pro-Russia partly because he was anti-Islam and he saw Russia as an ally, as a, a Christian ally in a civilizational uh, battle. Paul Manafort, Trump's uh, campaign uh, advisor, actually CEO, has long-standing ties to Russian oligarchs and he also advised deposed Ukrainian president Yanukovych. So he has ties to Russia that go way back. And some business deals that are pretty shady and are also being investigated by the FBI. Uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has had a soft spot for Russia in the past, well, because he was the CEO of an oil company, and you kind of have to do that kind of thing. Uh, Carter Page was kind of a more peripheral on and off advisor to the Trump campaign. He worked for uh, an investment bank in Russia, and he really wanted to get in with the Trump campaign in order to use that, I think, to, for his own financial gain. He, so he was an opportunist. Incidentally, Carter Page actually has been under investigation by the FBI for possible espionage or for giving secrets to Russia. I'm going to make a brief aside here to look at a speech that Carter Page gave in Moscow, which was an event that uh, got the attention of the FBI. Uh, Page's views on Russia are unorthodox. He tends to take Russia's side on a lot of issues. Um, very different from how most Americans think about Russia, but somewhat similar to how Trump does. I'm just going to look at a small part of the speech here uh, in the top full paragraph. 
And he's talking about how many Westerners have the wrong idea about Russia and tend to call it names in, in unfair ways. Uh, he says, there's a, the diversity of alternative perspectives that produced and criticized the Occupy movement also stand in sharp contrast to the pervasive disapproval among Western scholars and other experts regarding standards of governance in Russia, China, and Central Asia. So basically, it's trying to whitewash the reputations of China, Russia, and Central Asia. Uh, previewing the more adverse reviews that lie within recent books and reflecting a broad consensus among experts, some of the latest popular titles in the scholarly literature have referred to chaos, violence, and dynasty, and predatory regimes. I'll stop there. That looks irrelevant. But if you go down to the footnote, that's actually my book. <laughs> Weapons of the World, Predatory Regimes and Elite-Led Protests in Central Asia. So I had no idea that I had a fan in this opportunist who's being investigated by the FBI. And it was this very speech that caught the attention of the FBI, leading to an espionage investigation. So if nothing else, if I don't accomplish anything else in my life, I am at least a footnote in the speech. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I'm not done yet. So back to substance. Uh, there are more innocent ways to explain then why so many Trump advisors had these pro-Russian sympathies. Um, an additional factor is that most Republicans during the campaign did not support Trump and wanted nothing to do with him. So Trump wasn't able to gain foreign policy advisors with traditional Republican views, who are mostly uh, Cold Warriors and Russia hawks. So he was forced to go way down to the bottom of the barrel to find people who could advise him. And these are people who tended to not be associated with the Republican Party because, precisely because they have unorthodox views. So what do we know now? That was during the campaign. What has the Trump administration's policy actually been toward Russia? There was some suggestion of what he might do before during the campaign, even though Trump is not really a policy guy and it's hard to know how to interpret tweets, but he suggested that there would be changes on certain policies, but they didn't actually materialize in most cases. Uh, he criticized NATO plenty during the campaign, and just recently he said NATO is actually important or indispensable. And the Trump administration even signed on to an enlargement of NATO by um, agreeing that Montenegro should now be the next member. So Trump has expanded NATO. There was some possibility that Trump might want to end the sanctions imposed against Russia after Ukraine. So far, no. It's the same. In Syria, there was some talk that Trump would now take the side of, of the Assad regime and, and Russia. Uh, but that changed about how long? Three weeks ago, after the, uh, the chemical attack and Trump's decision to launch missiles at, at Syria. And now the policy isn't entirely clear, but several uh, Trump administration people are on the record saying Assad must go. That was Obama's policy. Ukraine is a little bit different. Um, even though the US vocally advocated for Ukraine, it really didn't do much concretely, except for trying to support reforms of, of a corrupt system. But the US didn't really do that much to help Ukraine, partly because you know, it really doesn't have much power in, in that country. And the policy is more or less the same now. And on human rights, um, the Trump administration claimed that it didn't care about human rights. And for the most part, that's also pretty consistent. Uh, so Trump has shown himself to be 
more or less a pragmatist when it comes to foreign policy, having reversed many of his more controversial positions from the campaign on issues like China, uh, and now is practicing a mostly conventional kind of foreign policy. So even though there was a fear during the campaign uh, that Trump would try to reach a grand bargain with Russia, where basically the US would concede all of these differences to Putin, to Russia, um, and basically reverse American national interest. Well, that didn't happen. And yesterday was the first known phone conversation uh, between Putin and Trump since he was elected. And at least from what was reported about it, it was a completely ordinary conversation with bland platitudes about how the countries wanted to work together in Syria. So, it's hard to say what will happen in the future, as it always is, but at least a hundred and a few days in, if we're trying to determine whether leaders or structures are more uh, influential in influencing foreign policy, you'd have to say that structures win out. And at least for now, uh, Trump is a lot more conventional than he wanted to be and that many people feared he would be during the campaign. So I'll stop there. Thank you. So the question is whether uh, Trump is, has been shown to be pragmatic, as I said, or whether it's actually incoherent. I would say the two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Trump has hired a variety of people surrounding him who represent different worldviews and different foreign policy perspectives. And if there is a struggle among those foreign policy advisors to, to be consistent with existing policy, not just to Russia, but to lots of countries, or to shake things up, so far this battle has been won by the conventional foreign policy hands. Uh, and you can see this in the national security advisor, um, in the Secretary of State, to a large extent. I mean, Tillerson's rhetoric on Russia has been very unkind and unflattering up till now, despite people's fears. Nikki Haley, the US, UN ambassador, whose rhetoric is very typical of a conventional Republican. Uh, and a very notable thing is that uh, the National Security Council, um, what's the position? The lead, the lead national security figure for Russia is Fiona Hill who um, worked at the Brookings Institution, wrote a book about Putin, uh, and is an expert, is a true expert on Russia, and um, by no means an apologist for Putin. Uh, so Trump, or at least the people that work for Trump, have started to hire actual experts, and it's showing now that some of the advice of these experts is actually getting through, and I think that's what's affecting Trump's policies. Okay, so um, what would it take for Russia to have a sustainable relationship? Uh, I don't know if I would phrase uh, a relationship as sustainable or not. I mean, the two countries have diplomatic relations. They're both on the UN Security Council. Uh, there's consultation among military advisors of the two countries. So in that sense, there is an actual relationship. So it's not like the US and Cuba or the US and North Korea. 
Uh, but the issue is that the two countries have differing interests in, on major issues, on Ukraine, on Syria, on NATO, uh, and on, um, on the nature of, of Russian governance. So what would it take for these things to improve? Well, one or the other side has to change its, its views on these issues. And that's not likely to happen anytime soon. Uh, during the Cold War, the flashpoint of these two sides, of these two large blocks, was East Germany. And now it's moved east, and it's in Ukraine. And these are the, re the reason for these flashpoints in Europe is structural. It's that the two countries have differing, long-standing views about security, and this structures the way that these countries operate and, um, and the way that the countries relate to each other. That's not likely to change anytime soon. Uh, and the question about authoritarianism is that is the question about how whether it's a problem that Russia is authoritarian. In some I think the U.S. also works off of its national interests and is willing to deal with leaders not based on how they rule their own countries, but on whether they serve American national interests. Um, the re regime type is a secondary consideration for the most part. And even more so now, now that um, Trump has even dropped discussion of human rights or democracy in other countries uh, and is apparently willing to sit down and have lunch with uh, Kim Jong-un and invited President Duterte of the Philippines for a, a visit to the White House. So clearly under Trump, authoritarianism is no barrier. Yes. Trump said he was smarter than the generals. Uh, now he listens to them more than the experts in state. Uh, should we be worried about the rising influence of the military concerning potential future flashpoints with Russia? Scott? Yeah, oh, sorry. So the question is uh, about whether the military has too much influence in U.S. foreign policy and whether in Russia in particular there's a danger in listening too much to the military. I would say uh, in... In the case of Trump, these former uh, generals are a stabilizing influence on foreign policy. No, I mean that seriously. Because these are people who have worked within the system their whole lives. They believe in institutions. They value multilateral alliances. They support democracy. And generals know what war is like, so generals tend to shy away from war and try to advocate against provocative foreign policies. Uh, of course, it depends on which former military officers we're talking about. Michael Flynn clearly is very different right, from the current head of the National Security Council. But the people who are in government now are not like Flynn. They're institutionalists, and um, their foreign policies work in the interest of the status quo. So. I think if anything is going to lead to an accidental war with Russia, it will not be Trump's generals. Yeah. Uh, I had two short questions. How close do the uh, U.S. and Russian militaries get to each other in Syria? Do you have any idea? You know, like pilots. And the second question is, um, do the Central Asian economies, I assume they're growing, they have a lot of resources, do they have a lot of oil? So in Syria, my understanding is that the two militaries co 
coordinate. There, I'm not sure whether it's a direct line, whether it's one phone call. I think that was the intention under the Obama administration. Um, but both countries are very cognizant of the huge dangers involved if one country were to uh, attack the other country's troops. Uh, so even, even while we, we might consider these leaders uh, hot-headed or, or irrational, they, I'm not sure about, okay, Putin certainly understands the potential dangers of war, and Trump's advisors and, and the people who are running the war, whatever American involvement there is in Syria, are also very aware of the danger. So my understanding is they do work out arrangements so that they're not in the same place at the same time. Uh, in the Central, Central Asia um, is a region that has a lot of, of gas and oil. Some countries have more oil, some countries have more gas. Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan in particular um, are, are abundant in those. I want to call it a student. Yes? Mm -hmm. So this is a question. So the question was about uh, whose fault it is that the US and Russia keep clashing. And there's an argument out there that all of this is the West's fault. So there are really two narratives about everything that's gone on in the, in the post-Cold War period. So to briefly summarize, the American slash Western narrative is that the Soviet Union dissolved, 15 countries became independent, the US supports these countries' independence and sovereignty against Russian influence. These countries have the right to join any organization they want to. The NATO expansion is not a threat to Russia. So in a nutshell, that's the West narrative. Russia's narrative, which some political scientists who favor a realist uh, worldview of politics say this is actually the West's fault because Russia has always had a complex when it comes to its territory and national security. Uh, the expansion of NATO was needlessly provocative because it threatened Russian national security. And by trying to get involved in um, post-Soviet countries' politics, supporting non-governmental organizations, indirectly or directly supporting democratic revolutions, meddling in these countries' affairs, uh, the U.S. is also acting inappropriately and in ways that Russia should find justifiably threatening. So these are the two narratives about what's, what's been happening in the world. How do you go about adjudicating between those? Well, you have to look at the evidence, and it's very difficult. And uh, my position is somewhere in between the two. Uh, so it's complicated. If you, want to, if you want to know more about the sort of unconventional, the, the, un, the unorthodox version of events from the West. Uh, you can look at uh, John Mearsheimer's work. He's a political scientist in Chicago. He had an article in Foreign Affairs arguing um, this very point in 2014 during the Ukraine crisis. Yeah. Why is Russia so committed to Assad? Why is Russia so committed to Assad? That was easy to, to repeat. So. Uh, there's a few aspects of Russia's involvement in Syria. One has to do with Syria in particular, and one has to do with what Syria represents for Russia. So the Soviet Union was a patron of Syria during the Cold War. It had military bases there. 
it was an ally in the Middle East in these complex um, Cold War games where there were alliances on both sides. And Assad's uh, father was uh, the president of Syria since um, I think the early, since 1980 or so. So there's a continuity there. And so Russia sees Syria as an ally in a very strategic region where it wants to have influence. But to account for the intervention that started a couple years ago, you also have to look at the broader story of what's been going on internationally, which I referred to earlier, the fact that Russia feels like it's been pushed around, like the West has encroached into its former spheres of influence, and uh, it saw Syria as an opportunity to push back against what it was afraid would be another example of Western-directed regime change. Uh, another virtue of, of getting involved in this particular war was that this could prevent another uh, toppling of a pro-Russian regime. And uh, it kind of reflects the thinking of the, of the Putin government over the last decade or so, that now that Russia is strong and powerful, it needs to take active means to push back. And that even means military force in some, in some cases. Uh, another contributing factor was that Russia wanted an opportunity to, to test and to show off some of its new military hardware. Russia has been investing heavily in, since the Georgia war in its military technology. And if it can show on international television uh, impressive uh, missile strikes, right? um, impressive weaponry, and uh, like the US did during the first Gulf War, showing on TV how it can uh, pinpoint targets and strike them accurately. This is a way for Russia, again, to show off its, its military prowess. So it fit for a lot of reasons. Um, and there's also a domestic explanation for it, which is that uh, short, victorious foreign war is never a bad thing for a president's popularity. And that's a universal. Yes? What is the state of Russia's nuclear arsenal? Are they ramping it down according to like international protocol a tiny bit or not necessarily? Uh, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, the two countries signed a nuclear agreement to reduce stockpiles in 2012, and both sides have adhered to this. Uh, there are arguments on both sides about whether it would be wise for both countries to further cut their stockpiles, and there's been some talk of potentially doing another round of arms talks in order, um, again, to, re to reduce uh, the arms on both sides, but it hasn't come to anything precisely because of the politics. Uh, more generally, the state of the Russian nuclear stockpile is extremely healthy, and Russia is just as capable of destroying the world many times over as it was in the 80s. George. How would you currently appraise the relationship between Canada and Putin? Between? Appraise the relationship between Canada and Putin. How would you appraise What's the, What was the first one? Huh? What, before Putin? Chechnya. And Chechnya. Yeah, how would you appraise the Right. Okay. What's so? Yeah. What's this? What's the situation of Chechnya and Russia? Uh, Russia had a Chechnya problem going back into the early '90s. There was a secessionist movement there under Yeltsin. Russia launched a war to try to bring it to heel. Um, it ended up being a draw. Actually, our Chechnya ended up winning because it ended up maintaining um, de facto sovereignty, and Russia really didn't have control over it. Under Putin, Russia launched the second war in Chechnya, which was much more brutal, 
uh, and devastating. And the solution to that to the second conflict, instead of um, completely integrating Chechnya back into the Russian state, Russia uh, Putin appointed uh, an official, a uh, a local patron, a local big man, who to whom he gave high levels of freedom to run the province as he saw fit. So uh, the person is Ramzan Kadyrov. And for the last, um, how many years? Since about 2005, Chechnya has been under Kadyrov's control. It's run according to Chechen rather than Russian laws. Uh, from Putin's perspective, the important thing is that there are no more rebellions, that Chechnya is pacified. And the government has been willing to turn a blind eye to what happens to Chechens in Chechnya. And as a result, there's a mini dictatorship in Chechnya within Russia. For now, this has created a kind of surface stability. But it's unknown whether this arrangement will still hold after Putin leaves the scene or if Kadyrov were to leave the scene for whatever reason. It rests very much on the two personalities and their understanding. And is not necessarily resilient to, uh, to some kind of change. Yes? I guess, could you, I mean, you mentioned the oligarchical kind of structure of Russia. I was wondering if you could compare the Russian oligarchy with the upper class in the US and ways that Trump's policy might work to solidify the upper class in a similar structure that Russia currently has economically. Well, that's a good thesis topic. Compare the. <laughs> Oligarchies in Russia and the US. Um, so the so-called oligarchs were a phenomenon of the 90s when the Russian economy was privatized. It gave opportunities for well-connected people uh, to benefit from the corrupt way the government was run in order to buy massive state assets that were being sold off. Uh, the oligarchs were very influential in the 90s. And when Putin came to power, he vowed to put a stop to that. And one of the major reforms that Putin made was to eliminate the influence of the so-called oligarchs. They were either arrested or run out of town or uh, co-opted. That is, people who were oligarchs, be oligarchs before now must serve the Putin regime. So today, there are no oligarchs as such. If you want to be super wealthy in Russia, you have to have Putin, not just the Kremlin, but Putin's permission. And you have to be loyal. And things will be asked of you from time to time in terms of speaking up in favor of Russian policy, contributing some money to some cause. So now, in a sense, the, the state and the oligarchy are, are one. And this is very different from the US. Uh, in the U.S., it would be hard to imagine um, that the state would be able, could ever, um, would ever take over the assets or appropriate, expropriate from um, uh, wealth, wealthy people. Wealthy people in America have a lot of uh, flexibility and a lot of influence over politics, but there are also laws in the U.S. that they have to comply with. So there is corruption in certain ways in the US, but it would also be impossible for wealthy people to throw around, throw around their political weight in America like they did in Russia. Yeah. 
So you seem to make the case that uh, power in Russia is centralized to this one dude. Is there anyone else who is a significant player in uh, his regime that could take charge if something tragic were to happen to so the question is, power in Russia seems to be all centralized around one dude. Is there anybody else, you mean in Russia, who yeah. is powerful? Like, if, if Putin were to pass away, right. would the government just be thrown into absolute chaos? Or would there be some sort of order of operation? So this is the succession question. What happens after Putin leaves the scene? And the answer is, people are taking bets. Nobody knows. One of the distinct features of Russia today is how opaque its politics is. And it looks a lot like, or the, its readability, its legibility is very similar to how it was in the Soviet Union. And it's very difficult to know what's really going on and to know who's really powerful. So during the Cold War, there was this pseudoscience called Kremlinology, which was a way that experts would try to figure out what's going on in Russia by watching Russian television, by uh, reading between the lines in official statements, looking at who's sitting next to the president and, or how far they are and where they are at the next meeting to try to divine who's really powerful and where they stand in the pecking order. Today, for the most part, we've been reduced to the same kind of ignorance. Nobody knows who the, next, who the second most powerful person in Russia is today. Uh, Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, is the prime minister, and he was the president for four years during an interim between Putin's presidential terms. The, there were protests in the last month against Medvedev for corruption, and the speculation, again, it's speculation based on rumor, which is you know, where our prognostication come from, comes from, that Medvedev will soon be demoted because he's unpopular now and Putin wants to get him out of the way to blame him for things that people are unhappy about. Beyond that, though, you can look at people who have official positions. Uh, perhaps these people could be next in line, but ultimately the succession will not occur through, most likely through an election or any kind of institutional procedure that we know about. Instead, it will depend on personalities and factions and because as outsiders, we don't know the contours of those factions, there is simply no good way to predict who would likely take power after Putin leaves the scene. Yes? It seems that uh, a big part of Trump's relationship with Russia was an opportunist perspective, a way to make money, make deals. Um, and then there was this reality check of what's going on in the world and, and how, how to actually you know, work with the different situations that are happening. Do you see that there is a possibility that, op that this opportunist perspective is a way to move forward with Russia in the future? So the question is, if Trump's fondness for Russia came from business opportunities before because Trump is opportunistic, uh, could the opportunism be helpful in the future? For whom? For both of them. For a way to move forward. For the U.S. or for Trump? For, for U.S. and Russia. So, yeah, I mean, um, if, if one of the reasons that Trump was, spoke highly of Russia before was business opportunities, 
And again, we know that um, he brought the Miss World pageant to Russia in 2013, and he was very excited about that. Um, does this mean, I'm not sure what kind of benefits this could yield in the future, but if the argument is, well, because Trump uh, is, is flexible, that may help the two countries avoid nuclear war, well, that's a plus. But beyond that, um, if, if Trump's business interests or potential future financial opportunities in Russia are at all responsible for shaping American policy toward Russia, um, this could be very good for Trump and not so good for the US. If the larger issue is that Trump is, again, pragmatic and flexible and not an ideologue, the positive aspect of that is that it makes it less likely that you're going to have a war over some, um, some ideological issue. On the other hand, there's also personality, and there's a bigger risk that a uh, sensitive, narcissistic, insecure leader, and I'm referring to our president in this case, might be more likely to react irrationally and aggressively towards somebody if they insult him. So there's two sides to that. Yeah. What's the state of Russian foreign reserves that have come way down in recent years, and what's the possibility they could actually run out, or what would they do before they did run out? So uh, one reason also that the Russian economy performed so well in the 2000s um, was that Russia developed a stabilization fund, and it put surplus revenues into a rainy day fund that it would only use if it really needed to. And then when the price of oil started to fall, 2013, 14, 15, they've had to dip into that fund in order to, uh, to run the government. And the reserves have been falling. I don't know exactly what they are now, what they were as a percentage of its peak. Um, things looked to be really bad when the price of oil was really low. But since then, the Russian economy has stabilized. Uh, I think it had negative growth for a few years, and now it's stabilized. And I think it's projected they're going to have slow but positive growth. Um, the head of the central bank there is, is very competent and was able to both control inflation and, um, and the sliding price of the ruble. So my understanding now is that because the economy is mostly stable and, and there's now growth, and because Russia imposed the policy of austerity, cutting pensions and government salaries, was able uh, to stabilize the budget. So reserves aren't, if they're falling, it's not as rapidly as, as they were before. I have a question about Afghanistan um, and Russia's position for Afghanistan at this point. Um, Anything in particular about Afghanistan? Well, they spent 20 years in Afghanistan and then withdrew. And I just wondered if they, uh, I don't hear a lot of comments about um, their position or So what is Russia's position on Afghanistan? For the most part, since the US got involved there, Russia has been supportive of US efforts in Afghanistan because it wants stability to itself, because it wants to decrease the flow of narcotics into Russia, and because it also has a, a jihadism problem, and it doesn't want Afghanistan also to be a, a source of terrorism that's more likely to affect Russia before it affects the West. So, that's, so Russia's policy, for the most part, has been consistent with the US and other Western countries. Recently, though, there has been reports 
um, not just rumors, but uh, American military officials who have been saying that Russia is now supporting the Taliban. And it's not clear exactly why they would do this, but one thing that it would do for sure is it would cause trouble for the uh, US slash NATO intervention there. Beyond that, it seems like a risky policy that could uh, ricochet and end up hurting Russian interest in the long run. So uh, I don't know enough to know about what, if it's actually going on, what the logic behind that is. Yeah. So the question, I think, is what does the U.S. want from Russia? Yeah, or what could we gain? Like, Trump is working really hard for a relationship. What can we gain from a relationship? Okay, well, how would the U.S. gain from a better relation with, relationship with Russia? So I think you, if you take a step back and look broadly at American national interests, especially in Europe, it, it might help to answer that question. What does the U.S. want? Aside from Trump and whatever um, quirks he has in this area, American national interests are peace and stability and prosperity in Europe. Anything that undermines that works against American interests. And so American diplomacy and uh, American foreign policy and military resources are often directed toward that end, peace, stability, and security in Europe. Which is why Russia, from the American perspective, has been a problem, because it is working against those goals. So from the broader perspective of American national interest, the U.S. would love Russia to go along with its support of NATO, its support of the EU, even though Trump himself doesn't seem to support it, um, to reduce its involvement in Ukraine or, or leave entirely uh, so that these countries, again, can join the world trading system, can be democracies, can have good relations with the U.S., and that would make war less likely. Um, but there's nothing particular, there's nothing that, you know, Russia, that America has written out that it's going to present a paper with to Putin ask, ask him to, to give them that. Instead, these are, I think, broader issues. Um, and American, I think, perceives Russians' relation with Russia through the broader lens of relations with Europe. Over there. So this is a question, um, so because Europe's, so Russia supplies a lot of Europe's natural gas, does the Trump administration have a position on that? Not that I'm aware of, but Europe's, the European leaders hope to uh, have a strong hand to negotiate with Russia by working as a bloc. So the European Union is the vehicle that will give Europe more leverage in any negotiations um, with Russia over the price of gas or, or over the building of new pipelines. So the Trump administration does not have a direct influence on this, but Trump has said negative things about the EU. He hasn't followed through with this uh, tangibly, but if there's anything the Trump administration might do based on what he said, and again, take that with a grain of salt, it would seem to work against European interests in uh, being able to stick together as a bloc as it negotiates with Russia. Yes? Okay, so, so be honest. 
please. What do you think the chances of Trump being impeached eventually are based maybe not so much on collusion between Trump associates and Russia, but based on his financial interests in Russia? So I'll speak to the Russia aspect of that because that's why I was asked to be here. I would be very, very, very surprised if there was a piece of evidence, a smoking gun, if you will, that would link Trump to some kind of major crime. We, we're pretty confident, the intelligence community is pretty confident that Russia in, uh, interfered in the US election in order to help Trump. They could have done that and perhaps did do that on their own without any assistance from the US because they really didn't need any. I mean, without any assistance from particular figures in Trump's orbit. They did receive assistance from the US media in propagating those stories. Um, and if there were some discussions between, say, Manafort or Carter Page and some people with some connection to the Kremlin, it's unlikely that there would be proof that those meetings took place. There would be nothing on the record about what they said. And even if there were, I would find it very hard to imagine Trump himself was involved in those discussions or could be at all implicated in those discussions. Thank you very much. Thank you.